Hi there, my name is Tim. And my name is Luke. And you are listening to the Recruitment Now podcast. We are passionate about recruiting. Each episode, we share ideas and insights into the world of recruiting from world-class recruiters and researchers. This podcast is for recruiters, HR professionals, and anyone looking to improve their recruitment abilities. So David Berkus, he is a best-selling author and a sought-after keynote speaker. His newest book, Friend of a Friend, offers readers a new perspective on how to grow their networks and build key connections, one based on the science of human behavior, not rote networking advice. He's delivered keynotes to the leaders of Fortune 500 companies and the future leaders of the United States Naval Academy. His TED Talk has been viewed over 2 million times, and he's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. And really interesting here is that really David is a friend of a friend to me. He is. So yeah, Dave, David and I go way back. Uh, we did our doctorates together. But yeah, Luke has not met David until a few minutes ago. So he's a friend of a friend there. So, so. now he's part of my network, hey, Dave? No, no, that's great. Is that that's how it great. works? Good, good, to, good. You know, that is exactly how it works. And I, you know, I've come to realize in the two years since the book came out that I am never going to live that down. And I'm going to be the receiving end of friend of a friend jokes for the rest of my life, which <laughs> is fine. Cute. As as long as those jokes also move copies of the book, I'm happy. That's good to know. So 20 years from now, I'm going to still be cracking those jokes. I'm warning you right now. So uh, no, just no, so totally. you know that. Okay, just so you know that. So so yeah, w- welcome, David. I mean, I, I think the concept of networking and I mean, you talk in detail in your book, Friend of a Friend, by the way, you know, for our listeners, buy the book. It's great there. But traditionally networking, it's a so shameless plug from David. No, I don't get paid for that. But uh, <laughs> the traditional networking, when you hear networking, the first thing that comes to mind is these awkward networking events. Uh, where, you know, like go to networking oh, events man. and meet people. And for the introverts like me, you just cringe when you think about that. You just picture yourself standing. What was the word? You said like like a high school kid at the prom or what? Or something like the awkward junior high kid trying to work up the nerve to go ask the girl to dance with them. And that's often what it feels like for introverts. But that's where we started from. And obviously your book goes way beyond that into the actual science behind networking. So why don't we... So, and we'll get there in a second here, but why don't we chat a bit about your background, David, and then we'll get into what led you to write this book here. So tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, oh, no, totally. I mean, I, so for, for to this conversation, I, uh, I lean more extroverted than introverted, but I still find those events just as awkward as you do. So, you know, I think it's, it, it, it's all of us. It's all of us. So, uh, I mean, my background, I, I, I met Tim in our doctoral program together. I, from from uh, graduate school on, had this one sort of unifying mission to a lot of my work, which is that I've been trying to, I always call it, get good ideas out of the ivory tower and into the corner office, right? There's a lot of research that's done both um, inside of business schools, but also in, in psychology programs, et cetera, around human behavior, or in this case, social networks. And it doesn't always get translated into practice. And as a result, usually common practice is actually you know, not in line with what sometimes decades of research has suggests is the best way to operate. And so I've done that through three different books. Like I said, the most recent is, is Friend of a Friend. Ironically, uh, most people start my bio with a, that I'm a, a business school professor, uh, but that was a Friend of a Friend thing too. That was a total accidental uh, point. My, my goal was basically to use whatever medium that I could, mostly books, but also speaking and running a podcast and uh, making videos and that sort of thing to try and get those good ideas out of the ivory tower and into the corner office. And my hope with friend of a friend is that we get those good ideas in and we make this whole thing a whole lot less awkward. Okay, perfect. Well, let's dive into friend of a friend. What drove you to write this book? You know, you, you spoke generally about getting ideas from the ivory tower and there are a lot of ivory, ivory tower ideas in this book and 
you have that great ability to take these complex 30-page research articles that make your eyes glaze over and put them in two paragraphs <laughs> and summarize that. You're really good at that in all three of your books there. But uh, what drove you to write on this topic specifically? Yeah, so so networking is not a dirty word and neither is ivory tower, right? But when I when I looked at the landscape, so a couple of different things happened at once. The, the first was writing, both of the books that I've written prior draw a little bit of research from the world of network science. It's just fascinating to study how people are connected to each other, how the connections that people have affect their success or the success of a team, et cetera. That was just fascinating. I couldn't help but write that. And after my second book, I found myself reading a whole lot more of those 30 page academic articles that were in um, journals that lent towards social networks. So social networks as a term, as a field of study is a sort of a blend of sociology, psychology, but also mathematics and physics and economics. And I found myself going down this sort of rabbit hole, right? At the same time, I'm looking at the market for books, for business books, for networking books, et cetera. And almost all of them, all of them make the same promises and then try and solve them the same way. And I, I almost categorize them into two different well, I categorize them into two different categories because that's what you generally do when you categorize things. You put them into categories. Um, and I, <laughs> Brilliant I them, advice from Dr. David Burkus. <laughs> right? isn't, isn't it? Jeez. <laughs> I, I call them the advice books and the isn't it fascinating books, right? We probably all read a networking advice book. These are how to win friends and influence people and never eat alone and dig your well before you're thirsty. And these are good books by good, well-meaning people who have built their own network over time to be something rich in social capital. But they're also a sample size of one to use a, an org behavior or, or any sort of science term, right? They're, they're just one observation. And unless you look exactly like that person, work in a similar industry to that person's experience, are a similar uh, extroversion versus introversion, for example, of them, that advice may not work for you. And I think a lot of a lot of the awkwardness that comes when we try that networking thing is that we read uh, the book or we read a summary of the book on the internet somewhere and then we went and tried to put that into practice and we felt sleazy or we felt inauthentic. We felt like somebody pretending to network and you were pretending. You were pretending to be the author of that book by following his or her advice. Right? I totally agree with you. I share um, the same sentiment. Yeah, yeah, no. So, so, I mean, there's... Firsthand. Yeah, there's other things that make networking events awkward and we'll talk about them too, but that's a lot of it, right? And then the other category I would call the um, isn't it fascinating books. And these are the books written by the actual network scientists. Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler have a great one. Duncan Watts have a great one. They're kind of slow reads in terms of entertainment value, but they don't offer any prescription, right? All of the prescription is over in the advice book side. So I'm down this rabbit hole of reading all the social networks thing and I'm looking at the, the existing market and I'm going, there's got to be a market for somebody that can split the difference, for somebody that can take the prescriptiveness of an advice book, but base that advice on what works for everyone instead of just a sample size of one. And so that was the goal with Friend of a Friend, right? It's, it's similar to and draws a lot from the isn't it fascinating books, but the goal, in fact, we do it at the end of every chapter is to go, if this is true, then this is what it means for you and your network and here's how to put it into practice. Um, and hopefully we've split that difference and created something that people can actually build their own authentic networking strategy off of instead of just copying whatever the popular one of the day is. When I think, you know, why I wanted to bring you onto the podcast here is when we talk about recruitment, you know, one of the reasons you pay a recruiter is because of the network they bring, at least on paper. And sometimes, you know, people are faking it, but you don't pay a head headhunter to do all the work for you. You pay a headhunter because in theory, they know the people that would be interested in the job 
or they can get access to those people. So you're really paying them for that network. So I think, you know, understanding those networks is powerful for recruiters. So let's, let's dive into the content of the book. We won't have time to go through every key point there, but what are, what are some of those key points that you make specifically in the book there? So I think, I think the biggest one, and this, this speaks to recruiters, whether you are um, trying to build out your network so that you have that marketable asset that we were just talking about, or whether you're in-house and you're, you're just trying to fill positions in-house as much as possible. A lot of us really overestimate um, the, the importance of the people that we know on a regular basis and underestimate the people that, that we know but don't know that well. In other words, most of us, when we have an issue, we want to get connected to somebody, et cetera, we start with, we define our network just as like the people we'd be comfortable calling, right? The, the close friends. And then when we are told we need to network, and sometimes it's even in people's like performance evaluations, how many networking events did you go to? We jump right from close contacts to total strangers and we skip over this whole category of, of nodes in network science called weak ties, or they're sometimes referred to as dormant ties. These are people that you know, but you don't know that well. Presumably, you're going after strangers. You're trying to make new connections because those people who you don't know are connected to more people you don't know, have different information, different ideas, different opinions, whatever it is you're looking for. You can get more rich information from them. Your close contacts are usually going to know all of the same people, are going to think largely the same way, have a lot of that same information. The irony is these weak ties or dormant ties have just as much diversity of information as the total strangers, but it's significantly less awkward to reach back out to them. Now, I, I should say significantly less awkward, but that only assumes you're making a regular habit of reaching back out to them. If you are, you know, we've all been on the receiving end of somebody we haven't talked to in two years and suddenly they're got laid off and now they're reaching back to you because they need help with a job. That's still awkward, right? But mm -hmm. one of the skills recruiters in-house or out need to develop, I think, is to be constantly reconnecting with those weak ties, those dormant ties, those people you don't, you know, but you don't know all that well on a regular basis. Since, since publishing the book, I've started to describe this as like the clock of awkwardness or the stopwatch of awkwardness. Every time you interact with somebody, you push reset on that stopwatch. And, and then the longer amount of time that goes before you talk to them again, the more awkward it will be the next time you talk to them. The goal is always to push refresh. The goal is always to check back in with that person before it's awkward. And, and, and this, David, isn't just, this isn't just transactional for you. This is also what helps them as well. It makes it less awkward when they need your information as well. well um, what I find interesting, though, is, you know, everybody, all of us have received that awkward call where somebody calls you after two years and it's because they need something. But there's also a part of me that thinks, okay, well, I, I get it. They didn't need anything in the past and and there has been no reason for them to reach out until now. So maybe I'm just happy to jump in because I understand the timing is right. Yes, it's awkward, but is there value in, in keeping those ties warm versus having them cold? Because if the ask is the ask, you know, aren't, aren't people going to help you out anyway? Yeah. So as the, as the token American on the podcast, I will tell you that your sentiment <laughs> is not, <laughs> it's not the norm, right? The longer that period of time goes, the, uh, let's call it the lower the response rate will be, right? You, you need a new job or you're looking to fill a new position, right? And you haven't talked to, let's say you take a list of 25 people that you haven't talked to in a year. The percentage of people that actually respond is going to be a whole lot lower if it's been a year versus if they check if you check in with them or they check in with you every quarter or so even if you don't talk about anything i mean we're not i'm not talking about logging a skype call with every person you've ever met and, and talking for an hour about everything 
But little things make a huge difference here. Little things like forwarding an article about that person's company that puts them in a positive light and, and just saying, hey, I don't know if you saw this, but you know, made me think of you, keep it up. It's almost little like we things, need a CRM just for our personal relationships, just yeah. you know, to remind us, oh, reach out to that person again. It's been six months. So. Yeah, and there there actually are CRMs that work that work on a personal really? level really really well that way. I've I've found I've I've stopped endorsing them all. I used to endorse one, and uh, and I was a paid member. I wasn't even, I wasn't being paid to endorse them. I actually paid to use the software. Okay. But what I found is that uh, often there's a habit thing here too. So most of us we we live under. I'll, to be brutally honest, we live under this illusion of busyness where we're so busy we don't take the time to do things that only take 10 seconds to do. And so since writing Friend of a Friend, I've sort of developed this habit that if somebody pops into my head for some reason, I just I send them the text or the email right there, right? Or the, the message on social media right there because it takes like 20 seconds to let someone know, hey, I was thinking about you today and I hope you're well. And yet that goes a, a huge way in terms of keeping that relationship warm, keeping those positive feelings and associations going and resetting the clock of awkwardness. So is, is that all it takes, David, is a simple message like that to keep this, you know, or I mean, does it have to be mo something more significant? Like, you know, so it depends on it. Well, it depends on the strength of the relationship and your goals, right? If this is a weak tie that you want to make stronger, then then maybe you this strategy doesn't work as well. Maybe you want to make sure you're bringing value every time, so you're you're offering like the article example works better in those types of relationships. Making sure that you're you're you know things that are of interest to them, and you're bringing those things to them. If it's a dormant tie, somebody you know but you haven't talked to in a while, little things like that usually are enough, right? Like. Like, I mean, uh, to use a great example, you and I, Tim, right? We, we probably interact uh, every three to four months. And yeah, most that, yeah. of the time, it's not information rich. It's just little messages. Yep. And I can see how that takes the awkwardness away and, and also makes you feel more authentic versus using the advice books you mentioned earlier. Because right, now right. you're reaching out to somebody without an ulterior motive and you just feel genuine about it. So then down the road, when you really do need something, you'd, you don't feel guilty. Yeah, it's just another in a series of conversations that you have every couple of months with these people. It's like the penny just dropped. Totally. <laughs> Drop a penny somewhere. We'll add a sound effect in later. So so what do you do? I mean, weak ties, in theory, you've kept them, you know, warm or whatever the term is. But what if you notice, you know, there is somebody that you haven't talked to in, you know, five years or 10 years or something. What, what, what should you do there? And you think hey, like, oh, are shoot, we, I, I should Are we in that situation where we need them for yeah, some need, ulterior motive like, or hey, not? Yes, for an ulterior motive. Hey, they work at a company I want to work at. Do you think you should play that card or is there a better way to do that? So yeah, in, so, in hindsight, so, you should have kept it warm, but you didn't. So you made a right, mistake Right, right, right. What, what do you do now, right? Yeah. Best, best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, but I don't have a tree. So what do we do today? Absolutely. Right? Um, so I should preface this by saying that I don't have a lot of data here. Okay. <laughs> right. There's not a lot of social network studies on this. But one of the things I try and do in the book is pair the, the research with a lot of different examples from a lot of different people from different industries and different genders and ethnicities, et cetera, to get an idea. When you when you look at all the different networkers that are featured in the book, one of the constant dreams is just be open and honest about it if that's what it is. Right. So the 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 email is actually received more awkwardly if you're trying to do that. Hey, how are you? doing how's the family how's this how's that and then the very last line is oh by the way can you refer me for this job right or, or whatever that's received a whole lot less uh 
a whole lot less well. That, that's a very weird way to phrase that. We get it, though. Than, than <laughs> an email that just says, hey, I know we haven't talked to each other in a while, but I was thinking about you because I'm looking at, at this and I wondered if you knew anything or whatever. I would not make the ask right away, but I would state the reason you're reaching back out to that person. And you're, so you're letting them pro offer whatever help they can get, but you're being right up front about the reason you came back into my head is for this reason, right? And again, some of this depends on the strength of relationship. If it's been five years or longer and you were never really all that close with that person, you may even consider sort of a reintroduction to that person if you have a mutual friend or something like that. It, it's really sort of contextual at that point, looking at what a lot of people do. But the biggest thing is don't don't try and sugarcoat it with like, oh, I'm interested in helping you and this and then, and then oh yeah, I need this favor. Be open and honest about the reason you're reaching back out to them, but don't make the ask right away. Just put it in their head that, yeah, I am reaching back out to you because I need a contact at this company, but let them offer to be that person. I was going to say maybe there is, uh, you know, would you would you say that in what you found in your research that doing the ask first is maybe just the best way to get that out of the way without sounding insincere? Because when you end well, you're off- still, The ask is implied, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're still letting them know the reason you're reaching back. It's, it's not because you care about their right it's because they work at the company that you need to get connected to or whatever yeah um, but i don't i don't know that you've got to get specific about this is exactly what i need all right so we, we, we talked about weak ties dormant ties here and you mentioned in your book too that people should seek out silos in their networks now you talk you know most organizational theory organizational design it's all like silos are bad don't have them they exist anyways but uh use the term silos a little different way but tell us a bit about that and that concept in your book yeah, so, well, so this is this is an area where the research, again, is sort of counterintuitive to a lot of, of common sense, right? We've known, or at least the, the conventional wisdom in organizations is that silos are bad, and we've known that for like 40 years now, and yet they're still there. So maybe there's some deeper function that they serve, that it, it's more about how do we undo some of the damage of silos, knowing that they're always going to be there, right? And that's exactly what we see in the research. When you look at the way information spreads or the way people navigate through networks, silos or clusters they're sometimes referred to in the in the research are a huge part of that it's not just individual nodes connected to individual nodes that's why i mean one of the biggest things i tell people is that the first mindset shift you can have is that you don't have a network you exist inside of a network and your job is to navigate that network or expand the um the level of influence that you have in that network the social capital that you develop in that network and clusters and and silos are a huge part of that people naturally cluster towards people of similar interests, similar backgrounds, similar um, industries or departments inside a larger organization. These clusters happen and and we're not going to get rid of them. Um, So the question is how much time you spend in them versus not. If you're looking to make a big career change, if you're looking to expand into a new field, let's say you've just opened up a, a new division or you for the first time ever as a recruiter, you're trying to recruit somebody for a position that you've never recruited for before, you're going to have to make inroads into those silos, whether that's a trade association or a more organic cluster, whatever it is, um, they exist. And, and what we find on an individual level, the people that manage their career by vacillating back and forth between being in a silo and being out trying to make new individual connections are the ones that succeed the most. So yeah, don't spend all of your time in silos, right? Because that's where we get the silos, politics and turf wars thing. But don't ignore, eschew them, ignore them entirely and say, I just want to be connected to everybody because that's not really possible and that's not how humans operate. We still operate inside community. It makes a lot of sense. Like if you look at it just from a business lens, many companies, you know, you're in a niche 
how do you find your customers? They are clustered in a certain place. They have a, a specific problem. They're in a silo. You know, your ideal customer profile is really a silo of people that kind of all look the same. And that's how you win them over because you get to speak their language, you understand them, and you hang out where they hang out, whatever that customer acquisition channel is. It just, it, like, it, it makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my friend Pam Slim, who, it's, it's funny, we sort of came at this study of communities in two different ways. She uses the term watering holes instead of silos, right? Mm-hmm. Who is your target customer or who, whoever? Who do you want to get connected to? Great. Where do people like that hang out? What is their watering hole, right? At the end of the day on the Savannah, everybody gets together. What is that? Okay, you need to go be a part of whatever that is. Well, the watering hole could be the pub on the corner. Just on the right block. We, just on we the right ho- block. We all hope it is. <laughs> might, might be, depending on the industry. Yeah. <laughs> now, you, you also talk in a book about being a super connector. What, what's a super connector to you? Yeah, so um, this is a probably, next to the word networking, probably the most abused term, right? Because it, it either brings up connotations of people that are, you know, oh, really lucky because of who they know or the people that are always bragging about how many connections they have on LinkedIn, et cetera. And that's not necessarily who we're talking about. There, there is, a, I mean, a very present phenomenon in, in the study of any network, whether that's a, the 7.7 billion people on the planet or just the network inside of an industry or a company. There is a, a it is not a um, normal distribution if you look at the number of people people are connected to, right? There's not an average that wings out um, in an inverted U. It doesn't work like that. It works like a power law. 20% of people really are connected to 80% of the people. It's, hmm. it's not always 80, 20, but you know what I mean when I say power law. Those people who are at the top end of that, the term in network science is that term super connector. And what I think is interesting about super connectors isn't actually that they exist, because they do, and we all know they do. Um, it's how they exist. And the ones that are legitimately super connectors are not the pushy people always trying to meet new people and always bragging about how much they know. They're actually, their networks grow a lot more passively. So, so super, in terms of the, the research literature, super connections, super connectors are linked to this term preferential attachment, which is a phenomenon that goes on in, in social networks where the, the most connected people in a community get a lion's share of the new connections to new people as they enter that community. And that makes sense, right? If you, if you know everybody in your industry and somebody joins your industry, there's a really good chance you're gonna get to know them first before that person who barely knows anybody gets to know them. That's just how it works. We call that sort of snowball effect or compounding interest effect preferential attachment. What I, what I find encouraging about preferential attachment is that A, most of the people I met when I was looking for stories on the superconnector side would tell me that the secret to a good network isn't addition, it's subtraction, and that would drive me nuts, right? Um, but it's true, the people who are managing a lot of these connections, people who are at the center of a network usually are cultivating that a bit more than they're just trying to add on to people and that's a that's a refreshing rebuke of some of these advice books that always just talk about the elevator pitch and how to meet as many people as possible how exactly do they do that well the the reason for that is preferential attachment because they've gotten to a place over 10 or 15 years where they built up that network now it has its own sort of gravitational pull and they can focus more on making sure they're meeting the right people and getting to the right people and not just trying to meet a bunch of people does that involve saying no to people wanting to meet with them? Sometimes it involves saying no, right? Sometimes it involves uh, like 
in the book, we talk about Adam Rifkin, who pioneered the idea of uh, what he called five-minute favors. So the only thing you're going to get from Adam might be a five-minute favor, and then you're you're on, right? It's an introduction or whatever. But it's not having coffee with everybody or, or, or selling everybody. The other the other thing they'll do a lot of times is is they will um, connect with people around events that they plan and hence they control the guest list. So this is like in the book, we talk about John Levy and his dinner parties um, or one of one of my good friends, Jason Gaynor, he runs a conference and the whole reason for the conference is basically to connect with his favorite 150 people in the world. And somehow he's convinced us all to pay him to <laughs> put that conference on. I still haven't figured that out. But um, so some of it is that con- creating these communities where you can kind of control the, the guest list. The, the reason I bring them, them up, though, is not necessarily for, for most of us aren't in that situation. Right. But it's still encouraging to know that, like, if it feels like networking comes easy to certain people, it's because networking comes easy to those people. But it's because they put in the work over 10 or 15 years. Right. And you look at an industry like recruiting, for example, it can get hugely frustrating when you first start because some people are so crazy connected. Well, preferential attachment is the reason for that, but it's also the, the power that you'll start to leverage the more you put in the work. So I don't get discouraged and throw up your hands and go, it's all just who you know. It, it is, but it takes time to build that, just like a retirement account, right? For the first 10 years, it's a total waste of money, and then suddenly compound interest clicks in, and now you've got some momentum. So let, let's play a hypothetical scenario here. You, you're a recruiter listening to this podcast and you want to use some of the principles in friend of a friend to become a better recruiter, what would you recommend they do first? Yeah, so this would depend, to me, it would depend on whether or not you're a headhunter or whether or not you're in. Well, let's so talk about I'll, headhunters. I'll in both ways. Let's, let's talk about headhunters first off then. Okay, so if you're a headhunter, the, the number one thing I would do is I would make a point in that, C, that, that virtual CRM system we were talking about or, or pretend CRM system, or, or you can buy one if you want. The first thing that I would do is I would make it a point to get in the habit of reaching back out to people that you um, tried to place and didn't place. You know what I mean? Because you usually are, are talking to lots of different people. Maybe maybe one person out of the four or five that you talked to worked out. Maybe none of them do. And then a lot of times we treat that like a factory and just, all right, that person's not necessarily interested or whatever. These are still if they're, you're good quality candidates. They're candidates you're connected to. These are still those weak ties that you need to be reaching back out to on a regular basis because you never know when they're suddenly going to need an opportunity or when you suddenly have an opportunity that's a better fit for them. Rather than trying to just constantly go back to the well and find new people, keeping those relationships, those are going to be your most important and most overlooked relationships. Um, similar thing on the side in-house, by the way. Um, I think for, for almost every manager, but also for sure recruiters and anybody in HR, former colleagues, people who don't actually work in your organization are are often the most potent source of new good employees, right? It's a similar, we always think about like, if you love working here, then the people that you think are great would also love working here. We always think about that with current employees. The problem is current employees spend 40 to 50 hours a week with us. How many new people that could come work for us do they know? Well, former colleagues, people that left on good terms, obviously there's a reason some people are former colleagues and that's not who we're talking about. They're swimming in a sea of people that have no idea our company exists, and yet they still know what makes for a good cultural fit or a productive employee inside our organization. So they're a huge source of referrals or or friend of a friend introductions to new good employees. So just looking at, hey, I worked with Luke last year. I should give him a call and see if he knows anybody because, you know, he quit to go get get a big promotion to a VP somewhere. Yeah, just so I mean, tap, tapping d- d- into that network, and he knows more people than I would in a different in a 
maybe yeah. not a completely different network, but a network that doesn't you know exist within me within my network. Interesting. Yeah, and and depending on your level of, of authority and how much you you can do, it's that individual level. I encourage a lot of managers, mid level, who can't really change things but can still do it, to throw almost like reunion lunches. Right, go back to all the people that used to be on your team and say, hey, I'm I'm planning a lunch for all of, for our old team. Do you want to come? And we're just gonna you know, reminisce or, or whatever. Um, if you've got the authority to do it, I talk about, I, this is actually something I talked about in, in my second book, Under New Management. Um, some companies are actually extending that employee referral bonus to former employees. will actually give you that same bonus if you're a former employee. I think that's a brilliant idea because you're incentivizing the very people who are out there who are a better source of new potential employees than current employees. It, it just makes sense. There's, there's some legalities there with 1099s in the US tax-wise and that sort of thing. But if you can make it work and you've got the authority to make it work, it's a brilliant scheme to do that exact thing. I think that another way that it could work is for somebody who, let's say, is a headhunter or an in-house recruiter, but is looking for another opportunity. So in this case, they're actually the job seeker. Um, it would be, think about investing in relationships with your colleagues from companies where you worked before. Um, you know, where I've worked before, every two weeks we'd have something called payday drinks. And I still, two or three times a year, will go and have some drinks with them on their payday uh, just to keep those relationships alive because you never know when, when opportunities might come up. And I wonder if that's the same for recruiters, right? Because everybody seems to know each other. You can still keep in touch with your previous colleagues when you're looking for an opportunity as a job seeker. I, I often get asked questions from job seekers, even though at Top Recruiter, we don't we don't necessarily work with many job seekers. It's more with the recruiters and the companies who need them. But often job seekers ask me for advice, you know, like what kind of networking events would you recommend I go into the city? And I'm kind of wondering, you know, why is it that people always think that networking means networking events? <laughs> and I'm sure you've got an answer for it. I th if, if, if I could... If I could attribute it to anything, I would put two th two culprits at play. The first is that certain positions, sales, recruiting, et cetera, somewhere along the line, somebody got the idea that we should actually put this in your like in your key performance objectives. How many how many events did you go to? And suddenly that became networking. The second thing is that the because those events are so awkward, a lot of the advice books started speaking to how to be less awkward at those events, and then suddenly it was just this this downward spiral, right? Um, obviously, you know, all three of us are in agreement on this, and this is a, a key point in the book is that there's so much more valuable things inside the verb of networking than, than these events. Um, and, and I actually find that these events are, if you're doing other things like regularly reaching back out to, to weak and dormant ties, et cetera, most of these events are a waste of time. Um, the watering holes is still a huge thing, but a lot of times the best connections are built when it's not the open-ended cocktail hour, but it's the, the actual conference. Like, I, I always hate that advice about, oh, don't go to the conference, but just hang out in the hallway all of the time. Like, no, go to the conference and go to the learning sessions and then pay attention to the questions people are asking. If you have similar questions, like follow up because now you have the shared experience that you can reference. If you just hang out in the hallway, your shared experience is that like, oh, they have fondue. Like that, and that's not very potent compared <laughs> to being a part of that. And when you look at the research, the activities that give people 
deeper connections and also more diverse connections are what we call shared activities where there is a um, there is some experience or objective that is shared among the people that are there the purpose of getting together is more than just to reconnect i realize payday drinks doesn't necessarily fit in this unless drinks is that that bigger thing but but I've seen this at play in my own network that the conferences that build in activity time, like we're all going to go like horseback riding. Or one time I went to a conference and we had target shooting, which was just awesome because you, or it was clay pigeon shooting, not target shooting. Because you get to know a lot, a lot about people when you're standing there next to, a, you know, with them shooting a clay Let pigeon. Let me guess, that was an American conference, right? It, it was a conference in America. <laughs> it was put on by Canadians. <laughs> Um, but these sort of, again, these sort of activities where there's a bigger purpose there, ironically, I think they, they take a lot of the awkwardness down because there's some other reason we can in, be invested in, but also people drop their scripts. They drop that little elevator pitch that the advice book taught them to say, and you talk about real things. And as a result, you get to know the, the real person, the fancy term, by the way, network science is multiplexity. You get to connect with them on a multiple different contexts and that builds a better connection. So you know, I think that's why the networking event became synonymous with the act of networking. And uh, I'll probably build an entire career out of trying to change that. And you guys are helping <laughs> me. So thank you for that. Would you say that finding commonality with somebody is the, is the quickest way to, to building trust with them in such a way that they added to your network? So when you look at the, at the research, commonality, yes, but specifically what some people call uncommon commonality. In other words, what do you two have in common that most of the room doesn't have in common, right? So for example, like um, when you, the example I love to use is you're traveling internationally somewhere and you meet another American who's willing to admit he's an American and not just a Canadian. Um, no, you're, you're the outcasts together. Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly that person and you are like bonded, right? Because yeah. the rest of the company is from Europe and, and you're both from America. But if you come back to America, you'd be like, dude, you're from New York and I'm from Texas. Like shove off, right? We don't, we don't actually <laughs> care that much. Right. So it's, it's, it's what you can find in common that the rest of the room doesn't share that actually evokes those deeper conversations and makes a more memorable introduction. So yes, it's definitely about the commonalities, but especially those uncommon commonalities bond people together faster. Now, if you were building a recruitment team, I mean, we all know that networking value is really why people pay recruiters, right? Uh, I'm mm -hmm. about headhunters particularly. It's really to be able to network, uh, leverage their network. If you were building a team of headhunters, uh, let's say you owned your own search firm, what is it that you would be looking for? What kind of traits or, or skills would you want to find naturally in, in that team of recruiters? Or what would you yeah. foster within them? So, uh, I mean, what I would say, my, my strategy, especially if it's from scratch and these recruiters, they, they don't have, I'm not buying their network by hiring them and that sort of thing, is I would implement that seek out silos idea, that watering holes idea. And I would say, we're going to go really niche in the beginning, not just niche like an industry, but like niche like a function in the industry. And we're going to um, find those watering holes and be really, really tight. I might, depending on the economics of the situation and the industries we choose, I might have to have a different person do a different thing. But the idea that they're going to thrive by going really small um, first, I think works a, a whole lot better. There's, a, there's another concept we talk about in the book called the illusion of majority, which is that you don't actually have to know everyone in the industry. But at a certain point, if you get connected to enough of the people that are those super connectors in the industry, you create this illusion that you are everywhere. And suddenly in that industry, you are the player, even though the rest of the world doesn't know who you are, right? Makes a lot and of I sense. think when we think about networking, we tend to go broad fast. 
because there are, we, we start to think about it like a numbers game. If I connect to a hundred people, I'll find 10 that are interested and I'll find what, and yeah, that's a, that's a really tempting thing when you just need to make the, the bell ring or the, you know, the paycheck come in, but it's not a really viable long-term strategy because you're not creating that illusion of majority. And how would you be able to spot somebody who is a natural uh, connector or networker? And I'm asking this question because I often find myself walking into a net, if, if it's a networking opportunity, I always take it all a step back and try to see, okay, who in this room do I want to connect with? I, I take those 30 seconds before just, you know, just walking in and seeing where I land. And I'm wondering if you do the same kind of thing or how do you determine, you know, who is the person you're going to approach, create a conversation with when you're, when you're surrounded by strangers? Yeah. So, so um, that's a hard question for me to answer because I try and avoid situations where I'm surrounded by strangers because, you know, like Good we were strategy. talking about the research on these networking events, they don't, they don't actually work all that well. If, if I am surrounded by strangers, it's usually because I've been introduced, like I've been invited to a shared activity and the host is basically the one who's connected to everybody and, and I, tr- I put my trust in that host, right? So, but, so I'll, I'll still answer your question, but in a little bit different way. If I'm trying to find the person in a watering hole, in a niche, in a silo, in a community, that is um, the most connected. What I actually do, just in general, when you're trying to reach out and make connections to people in a new industry, is I don't, a lot of people start from like the LinkedIn stalking approach. We look up certain people and then we say, oh, we have this person in common, I'll go beg for an introduction. This is actually where instead of doing that, I do go broad and I ask as many people as, as would be a fitting question for this, who do you know in blank? With blank being that industry, that sector, that city, whatever it is. And I ask that of a lot of different people. And I find that, that A, it works better because I get a lot of different names instead of just that one person I saw on LinkedIn that we were connected to when I searched for that company name. Um, but B, a lot of times I get the same name from four or five different people. That's a really good indication that that person is one of the super connectors in this niche or in this silo. So that would actually be my, if you're, if you're, if you're not at that, if you're taking my advice and ignoring the advice books and ignoring those events, that would be the way that I find those people. Is I ask a lot of different people who I know are tangential or are in that industry, who do you know in blank? And I see where their answers convalesce. All right. So, um, I'm stalling here. Just looking at my questions here. Um, what, what, what's ne- what's next for you in 2020, David? I mean, you've written three books. Um, you know, what, what what's coming up for you in 2020, and what what can we look forward to from you? So I'm I'm looking at a couple of different questions. One is around what take an existing team, especially in corporate life. Usually you are, um, you, some of you were placed by one recruiter, and others were placed by another, and the team is is. Uh, struggling to get to know everybody. I'm looking at what things unify and motivate te- teams together. What, what thing you can do to create a sense of group identity fast. Um, I can't go into more details on that because uh, that's Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, and then I'm also looking into, I, th- I think there's something, I talked about it at the very end of Friend of a Friend. I think there's something to communities as an agent of personal change that we're not paying enough attention to. There's a ton out there right now about habits. And I mean, it's, we're recording this on January 9th, right? Um, but even if you're listening to this in the first quarter of the year, you know what I mean. Every time the calendar changes over, everybody's like, I'm going to make these changes. And yet what we never think about is I need to change the community I'm a part of first if I'm going to make these changes stick. So I'm also looking in that area. I'm sort of juggling the two different projects and I have no idea which one's going to hit first. So that's why I can't share too many more details on that. Well, that's great. So um, people do want to follow David. What's, What's the best channel to follow you or connect with you? 
Well, the, the best place would be the show notes for this episode because you're already familiar with the podcast and they want you to go there. Um, DavidBurgess.com is my own uh, website. From there, we can go to whichever channel that you want. I do a um, once a week, if I'm really disciplined, we do kind of a cool explanatory video about a bunch of different stuff work-related. This week's was intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation and what does it actually mean? And you could find that on whatever social channel you connect with. But that's really, outside of my books, the other big piece of content. Um, that's there. My preference, to be honest with you, would be LinkedIn because let's be honest, we're all in business. Most of the people listening to this are recruiters. We're on there anyway. And the conversations going on on that network yep. are, it's like Facebook for adults um, or TikTok <laughs> for adults or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I that's heard probably it the channel for I would... adults. So uh, good, good for you. Um, yeah. yeah I, I love my first year students when they come in and they're like, LinkedIn, why would I do that? That's a dumb network. And by the fourth year, they're like, it's their primary network. You know, and yeah. they're using it and they're diving into it and they're starting to ignore their other networks because they realize I mean, it actually has a pragmatic value to them. So No, I mean, I, I get it because there was a really long time where LinkedIn was just a yep. place where you created a digital resume. But yep. like most of social media turned into a garbage fire in the last like six years. And yep. the, the only place where like grownups want to have nuanced conversations, the only place we have left is LinkedIn. And I don't even think LinkedIn was ready for it. I think they got surprised by the fact that this is where professionals were having conversations about these, you know, these things. Um, but that's where it's happening. That's the watering hole, right? So yep. yeah, that'd be my preference is to connect with everybody there. Okay. Well, sounds good. So thank you so much for joining us, David. And we look forward to um, you know, hopefully reading more of your material or seeing more videos this year. And uh, like David said, check them out at uh, davidberkus.com. And pick up Friend of a Friend. You can buy it on Amazon. It's a great book. I'm looking at it right now. And uh, read more detail of what we talked about here today. So you've been listening to the Recruitment Now podcast.